0: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get, well, access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. This week on Seneca, I am delighted to welcome Lulu Chen, a Hong Kong-based reporter for Bloomberg who has been covering the tech beat in China for over a decade. She is the author of a terrific book about one of China's most important and most successful internet companies, Tencent, best known certainly among Seneca listeners for its hugely popular, truly indispensable super app, WeChat, or Weixin but also for its massive portfolio of game companies and and other investments around the internet and around the world, including many of China's most popular online to offline services, and for the still very, very popular chat messenger QQ, Uh, also for its music streaming services and its online literature and and much else. With a market cap uh, yesterday of $425 U.S. billion, it is easily one of the most valuable internet companies in the world, the book is called Influence Empire, The Inside Story of Tencent and China's Tech Ambition. And for me, at least, it's right up there among the very best books that I've read about the internet in China, offering, as it does, a great historical account of the travails and triumphs of China's tech entrepreneurs from their very early efforts through, through the boom years, really, and uh, right up until the recent regulatory tightening. Read the book and you will learn a ton about Tencent, but also about its competitors and the epic struggles among them. It was a real pleasure to read and I highly recommend you pick up a copy. Lulu, congrats on the book and welcome to Seneca.
1: Great to be here, Kaiser.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was wonderful to have you. So, you know what I want to do? I want to start by giving listeners a sense for just how big and how vital and how important Tencent is today. Uh, What would you tell people who aren't already familiar with the company in order to give them a sense of just how vast the company is and how central its products are to the lives of ordinary Chinese people?
1: Well, for Tencent, I would break down its business largely into three chunks for people who don't understand what it is. There's WeChat that you mentioned. So that goes into the social media, uh, instant messaging, social media component. Um, WeChat is for mobile. And then during the desktop era, which is where Tencent got its first start, was QQ. Right. And then apart from that, you have the gaming sector, which actually generates, or at one point generated most of its revenue, which is why it got so big and why investors love it. And then there's the future business cloud, and also at one point FinTech was on the rising trajectory. That's come down a little bit after the crackdowns (laughs) in the past two years. Largely, I would say you can break it down from a revenue contribution point of view into these three sectors but on the sidelines it also had this vast investment component where they mm-hmm. were actively seeding and uh backing at its peak more than 800 startups and companies and many of those investments uh generated very handsome returns for the company as well.
0: Wow. 800 investments at its peak. That's insane. And you know, it's so central to life that like during the pandemic of course, basically it was it would have been impossible to get around without Tencent because it was you know, wasting was like where your health code showed up, right?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's hard for people to understand what it means to live without WeChat in China. And, uh, you know, I talk about how people sacrifice privacy for the sake of convenience using WeChat. And a common response I get from people who use Facebook is we do the same with Facebook. But yeah. it's, on, <laughs> it's on a much more intimate level because this app is tracking your location, all your conversations with um Most often in China, the closest people around you, your business contacts, your work contacts. Uh, and then on top of that, you're using it for payment. Every transaction at the, at the convenience store, what kind of milk product you buy in the morning. And then you're using the mini apps, the light apps on top for services like unlocking bicycles in Beijing or hailing a cab. So the data that they have is so much more well-rounded, and and more conclusive of who you are as a person.
0: So, Lulu, I, I remember when you joined the tech beat way back when I was still at Baidu, and you were always one of the tech journalists who I thought really got it. So you started covering tech back in 2012, if I remember correctly. And you talk a little bit about that decision in the book, how you moved to tech from the finance beat up. That wasn't a decision that just anyone would have made. What drew you specifically to tech and kept you on that beat for more than a decade
1: i remember those days i was a spring chicken in the tech beat and you're already this established person in in china internet industry also on the sidelines you were very famous for your music so i i completely could not fathom why how a famous music person was also like a very big figure in the chinese internet industry at the time i i think like uh part of it was coincidence but i think what helped me get a job at the time was because i grew up with uh these products using these products so it just helped me understand where they were coming from and how they matter to people's lives more as a second nature instead of coming it from the outside yeah
0: yeah that comes across in your book i mean you talk about you know how integral these things were in your life and when you talk about these games you actually play these games. I mean, you're, you know, it's 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 what gives people a real sense of the, uh, you know, your your f- intimate familiarity with the products, which is which is super super important. Uh, but but back then, I remember uh, you used to lament, and many tech po- reporters told me how difficult it was to cover Tencent specifically. You know, a lot of people told me that it was really hard to get access to their senior management, how little they would speak with the the, the press generally. So. Was this book based mainly on reporting that you'd already done in your many years at Bloomberg or did you do a whole new round of interviews at Tencent as you started to put the book together or, or how did you go about this?
1: Yeah, so a lot of it was based on reporting that I, I gathered over the years. I consider it as a reporter's notebook kind of compilation for many parts. Part of it was to give myself closure as well because after all those years I wanted the long-form narrative is quite gratifying in many ways for reporters. Yeah. And then on top of that, I had to fill in gaps here and there and to make sure that there were there were stories that I didn't manage to report. And so I hoped to achieve that through this book and get access to people I wasn't able to. And I think to me, like there are regrets writing this book. There was so much I wanted to do and people who... I wanted to interview, which I couldn't because COVID happened. Right. And there's a lot of history in the books, but I tried to make like the forward-looking section also more relevant to what's happening on the ground right now because things have also changed so much.
0: So in the years since I left China, did Tencent get any easier to report on? I mean, did they start maybe, you know, making themselves more accessible to journalists at all?
1: (laughs) It's... uh. Culturally, it's really, really interesting, you know, that at the very top you have these Wall Street, foreign educated, Ivy League educated, I would say bankers who's running the show. And then, yeah. you know, they're We're talking helping about Martin
0: Law and, Mar- and Martin about- and James yeah. Mitchell. Yeah, James Mitchell. Right? And
1: they're working there alongside Pony. His co-founding team, actually, I think most of them took a smaller role after the company grew like. From the phase where the company was growing from zero to one, they were all there. But once the company got from one to hundred, I think that's when the the Wall Street professionals stepped in. Right. But if you go and talk to people on the ground at the company, the average age of staff at this company is around twenty five years old. Wow. People who've never left the country and they're hardworking, but also. It's there's a disconnect between the the, uh, the the staff and also the management, and that's what makes this company very grassroots, bottom up, and a structural level. But also, if you try to try to find out what's happening at the company from a top down level or from the from the uh, investor relations department or from a senior executive level, is quite hard to penetrate. Very different from Alibaba, which is more market friendly and prone to chat with investors and also um, the media.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, we'll go more into the culture of the company in just a little bit, but let's talk about some of the personalities of the really important figures at Tencent, starting, of course, with Ma Huateng, with Pony Ma himself. Can you you do kind of a potted biography of him and talk about his his personality, his reputation, his leadership style and and that sort of thing?
1: So, Ma Huateng many people call him a geek because he was a programmer and he was one of those very studious students who actually was top of his class during the university years and known for hacking into their university computer systems.
0: <laughs>
1: I think for his Family background. I'm not sure how closely this is correlated, but his father comes from an interesting background because he does have a semi-state owned, uh, state owned company background, and mm-hmm. he was a senior management at this at, at the state owned company. So maybe some of that helped in part, um, corporate wisdom on Amahua Tong while he was growing up. And they they didn't grow up in the northern part, didn't grow up in the political capital in, in China. So he was born in Hainan province, which was known for its real estate bubble um, mm-hmm. at the time and being more commercial and entrepreneurial. And then they moved to Shenzhen, which has now become the uh, Silicon Valley of China, Um, So that that more relaxed atmosphere or environment probably was also conducive to him being entrepreneurial. And now, you know, he's kind of like the the face of China entrepreneurship. At one point, one of the wealthiest people in China. But he's always maintained this very low profile kind of personality, very different from uh, Jack Ma, who is not related
0: yeah, no, not related and not at all the same. I mean, he, Jack Ma is so flamboyant. Pony is super low key, right? I mean, you just never hear from him. I mean, he rarely gives public speeches. He, you know, he does public appearances. You know, he would go to you know the the round table, the, the the internet gathering in Hangzhou every year. But I mean, I've I've met him, but I I didn't ever get a read on the guy. I mean, he just seemed a total mystery to me always.
1: According to people who know him quite well, he, he actually can get quite, uh, he's quite playful. if, oh, if really? He, if, yeah, he can be, but he, he has, I guess he plays his cards quite close to his chest. So you, like most people would never say, see that side of him.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have any stories about personal encounters with him? I mean, did you ever see anything interesting?
1: Yeah, so I remember there there was this one year when the Hong Kong government was trying to attract investment for a Greater Bay Area. And it was one of the few occasions where he uh I think I saw him drop his guard down. Maybe it was in he was in his element, he was surrounded by people who knew quite well. And he he was just talking on stage in this very relaxed manner. And at one point I think the year was also very important. This was pre crackdown and everything. Um China was still on that very hopeful trajectory where you thought like entrepreneurs would take a a larger role in economy and everything and, and he brought up this point about jokingly about how if we bring investment into greater Bay area we we need to hold the like the officials and a government accountable to make sure that the money goes into the right places and the money is used effectively. And if if that doesn't happen, we need to 问责,问责.
0: Accountability, accountability.
1: Coming from him, who is so, so careful about everything that mm -mm, I'm saying so playfully at the time, I think it's just it's really like a a different era compared with where, where China internet is right now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, we'll talk about the crackdown, you know, that began in November, 2020. Uh, Really, I guess that's, that's when most people became aware of it. When the would be at financial IPO would have happened. (laughs) Um, The more accessible and outward facing guy at Tencent has always been Martin Lau. You described him, you know, he comes from a, a finance, a banking background, uh, but give us a sense of what he's like and his own background. And you talk to him a lot more, I imagine.
1: So, I think on a on a wider spectrum, he's he's on the same same end of the spectrum as Pony, in the sense that he's also low key, guarded, very careful. His family background is also quite interesting. His parents actually went back to China as that wave of patriots who were going to help build China in the call for reviving modernization of China after the Communist Party took over. And then, in his own words, history happened, and they had to leave the country. And they were going to go to, I think it was, they were going to go to Pakistan to go meet up with his grandmother. But then they stopped by in Hong Kong, and then they just stayed on in Hong Kong. And then when he was growing up, his parents always taught him to be an engineer which is what all Chinese parents tell kids to become, because as an engineer, you will always have a skill set and be able to feed yourself, whereas like the liberal arts subjects are always frowned upon. (laughs) So he wanted to study rocket science, Um, but then Mm. um, when he went to the U.S., obviously, that was not a possibility, so he uh, chose computer science instead but for for him like i think the the family background makes a lot of sense in understanding who he is you don't see a lot of uh, well for his era there weren't that many hong kong bankers who were trilingual in cantonese mandarin and also english and understood chinese private companies that well
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: which which is what gave him a foothold into into this company
0: There's a couple of other people that I want to talk about in a little bit. I want to bring them in like Wang Xin and and Zhang Xiaolong, uh, Alan Zhang. But uh, one other character that shows up in in the book, and it's interesting because he's somebody I've known for a long time, but your book was the first time I've seen an actual account of his role in some pivotal moments. One was getting the NASPERS deal. I'm talking about David Wallerstein, uh, who was a really young guy, just sort of an expat kicking around in, in, in Shenzhen, I guess or somewhere in, in, in Southern China. Now, when I see him, and I've seen him a couple of times in recent years, the only thing that we ever talk about is his alter ego. He calls himself Darwin, uh, and he is a beast of a guitar player, and he has some albums that he's recorded with some legendary musicians. I think, um, just just so we're clear on what, what kind of uh, music we're talking about, it's 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 sort of extreme chops-focused f- um, metal. It's like... Uh, you know, let me show you how great all these players are on, on this record. So he's got like legendary musicians playing on his records now. I guess that's what you can do when, when you know, you've been a huge deal maker at, at Tencent and you've got just you know, all the money in the world. <laughs> anyway, uh, talk about this guy. I mean, he later on went on to make some of uh, the really, really big deals with game developers and then publishers. Uh, but the the first coup was with Naspers, which is a South African co- company. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, you probably know Wallerstein better than, than I do, given that you're so into music.
0: <laughs>
1: you know what Wallerstein made me realize? Uh, it's this famous saying that Jack Ma likes to throw around, which is don't be the best, but be the first. And he absolutely embodies that phrase because he yeah. w- he he went to Shenzhen out of all places when, you know, for expats, hanging in Beijing and Shanghai it was already considered out there and he was hanging right. around in shenzhen and then i think like the approach that he took which was to hang out and see what young people were doing in china back then which is how he stumbled upon tencent's qq and these uh right. smoke-filled internet cafes, internet cafes. <laughs> internet cafes. <laughs> <laughs> With the uh, young people blood eyes bloodshot from playing online computer games but he he noticed how all the uh these people were using QQ at the time to communicate with each other. So he thought this was gonna be a, a a huge thing. That that's really why NASPERS has such a big stake in Tencent. In fact they're the largest shareholder. It's it's such a coincidence, but I think the approach he took was also, you know, very very smart for, for yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Genuine grassroots, you know, just, just get out there and, and see what people are actually using. Is kind of amazing, um, and you know he's still now he is the chief exploration officer for for set. Uh, he's based in the Bay Area and still does deals for them. That's uh, fascinating. 20, 20 plus years on. Um, like I said, there are a couple of other people that I want to bring in later. Uh, but first I want to get some of your impressions of the. It's, it's, what's What's amazing about this is that you have seen the the whole sort of history of not just tencent but also you know the whole transformation of the chinese internet sector while while covering tech um these are massive transformations including the way that the chinese tech companies were perceived from the outside of china because when you started you know we all used to joke c to c meant copy to china right uh, they still had this you know often quite well-deserved reputation as copycats uh but just four years in you know by 2016 I think it had changed quite a bit, you know. Uh, Can you talk about that change and whether and to what extent the reality matched the perception?
1: Yeah, so, you know, before 2012, there is this watershed moment where you can see it happening around 2012 when before, even for Alibaba, they they were big and Tencent was big, but it was very confined and also they – like they couldn't monetize their products to the extent that they're monetizing their products as, as they're doing now. And I think the mobile internet, Age is when they when they had this chance to leapfrog their U.S. counterparts and really excel at the UI design and also incorporate a lot of stuff that U.S. companies and investors were not were not doing. And in many ways, those designs on um, WeChat and Taobao, for example, have exceeded or or is um, more advanced than what. Their counterparts are doing in the U.S. Part of it is IP rights issues, because in the U.S., a lot of companies couldn't get away with just incorporating every function there is out there, which is why in China you have these super apps. They went into a virtuous cycle where because there were more users, they had to compete faster, update and make small tweaks constantly on a weekly basis. And that, in turn, generated more users, brought in more revenue, and, you know, the the companies became very vigilant in tracking new trends and user behavior habits, which made these apps so easy to use and, and so powerful.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the really big changes that took place not long after you started covering Tencent uh, was that they went from – I mean, it wasn't just Tencent, but also Ali – they went from being a company that was notorious for cloning and crushing, as we used to say, clone and crush uh, I mean it was was so notorious that China computer world actually ran this very famous cover story that had it said oh the <laughs> which I don't think I can translate politely um but it's kind of a Chinese I believe swear word that just means you know. Very bad. Let's say it was like those who lie down with dogs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, and it had a picture of their very famous penguin mascot. It was it had like knives and axes stuck in it. Uh, very famous. But, but they went very quickly to becoming this aggressive investor where they were no longer just doing the clone and crush model where they would see an idea, a young fledgling company, and either... Um, and then they would just just copy its idea, I mean, shamelessly, and then defeat it because you know they could they could you know push it out just more aggressively. Um, no, no more of that. They suddenly started becoming an investor. How did this happen? What was the what was the the, the pivotal moment there?
1: Well, the the moment on the magazine that was one for sure. They also brought in these after I think there was so much criticism on the street against them. They brought in this group of experts or people's opinion who they matter who mattered to them, uh-huh. and they had this conference conference of the gods they called it, and <laughs> all the all they did was critique. Tencent and its behavior, and it was so shocking to management. They really went into a uh, kind of a self reflect. You, you know, they really did some thinking in terms of their identity, identity, and their strategy. Um, and not after that, there were two major deals, um, acquisitions, uh, investments that that they made were that were quite symbolic of their strategy, um, and kind of. Mm, it, it, it it was like the uh, a signaling to the the startup community out there. One was their investment in Soko, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a competitor for Baidu. Right. Uh, so Baidu was number one and Soko, I believe at the time was number two. Uh, That's right. Or, or was Xihu number two? So Sogo might have been number two.
0: No, Sogo, Sogo first. Oh, yeah. Sogo was number two. Sogo was, was the search engine that, that Charles John Sohu had actually launched, but then it became an independent yeah. search so
1: engine. Yeah, the, so there was always a little bit of jockeying, but they invested in Sogo. And then the other deal, I think, was JD.com that was quite symbolic because uh, they actually folded their own e commerce units into JD and to the outside and and also internally it signaled that if first of all if you fail as a business their e-commerce business was not doing that well so if you if right. the if you as a unit don't do well we could shut you down or sell you off at every any given point just because we're a big company doesn't mean that you have your job security is there right so that was signaling to the internally and then signaling to the outside was that it was willing to invest and then also, um, it was comfortable to just you know focus on the core, which was being a connector of information and people and platforms. And it would let go of a lot of the other verticals it was competing in at a loss and not very successfully. So e-commerce was one of right, them. Right, right. Search engine was another.
0: So they then went on to become a really aggressive investor and. and- I, I remember watching this, and they were doing so many deals, and I was, you know, working at Baidu at the time, and Baidu uh, was very, very slow and very conservative. Uh, you made some very unflattering, but alas, all too true comparisons in your book to uh, the way that, that Baidu was in, because all three of the big companies back then, the BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, started to to, to really look at a lot of deals and, and were trying to do them uh, we, you know, Baidu was, was relatively slow, for sure. Uh, talk about the, the strategy uh, from Tencent and, and how it relates to the culture of the company itself.
1: So I remember talking to companies that were getting offers from Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent at the same time. And this was during the years when capital was so abundant, the interest in investing in startups was immense. Also, it was right before the, the leap, to mobile internet, so uh, investing right. in the right companies really mattered at the time, and it was all about um, investing in products that were of high frequency usage, like ride hailing was the typical example where a person would right. would have to click on the button and tap and use it uh, at least. I don't know if you if you have to make a trip, then you'd be tipping tapping on it for three times a day, right? Um, and it was about finding those those gems to ensure that people were using your payment system and making sure that people would want to use your mobile app. And I think for Tencent, they were super fast in giving term sheets and also very militant in, in ensuring that the founders wouldn't backtrack. Baidu, Robin was very careful with his budget. And so, and it's interesting, there were characters that they took they brought into place as well like richard pong is one of the person i i profile in the story and he mm-hmm. he was known for being he's it's funny that the head of uh investing in MA at baidu and tencent were actually close friends um but they were also <laughs> competing for the same deals Richard was very competitive, and in the book, I mentioned this story where he actually locks the founder of DD in a room just to make sure that he signs <laughs> the contract with him. Um, but that's what it was like for for making deals at the time. And you would sign term sheets and contracts over napkins and make deals within, you know, 24 hours. At one point, um, for the mergers that I talk in, in the book, um, they're moonlighting at Richard Liu's wedding and hashing out these deals.
0: The founder of JD, yeah. and he got married somewhere like in Indonesia or Thailand or something, or Bali or something. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah, one of those beautiful destination weddings. Uh, but on the sidelines, <laughs> you had these bankers and top executives moonlighting and hashing out deals at his wedding. So speed really, really mattered. And the fact that I think the Baidu lost on some of those pretty important key deals is what differentiated and and kind of put them in a different tier or put Alibaba and Tencent in a in a different tier.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean at the time, I mean just, just it it felt like we could always offer a really, really clear explanation of why this particular deal you know, had to do with our core business and how it, 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 there were obvious synergies. And, and it, it all made sense to, to the people who I was talking to. but that And then, you know, a lot of the, the ones that Ali and, and Tencent were making seemed so, you know, irrelevant to their core business. And uh, it seemed like they were throwing money away. But, you know, it turned out they were right. <laughs>
1: it's, it's probably, you know, at the time, because we were in this upward cycle, right? And it was the transitioning to a different platform, so for them, they they kind of use the machine gun approach, which is, I mean, Sequoia would Sequoia China would argue against this and say that was not their approach. But it's a five hundred startups um, approach, which is an upward cycle, up cycle. You machine gun everything and see what sticks at the end because you have so much money and you don't know what's going to work.
0: Yeah. Well, they turned out to be right. So you know, I think this this really reflects a lot about the company's cultures as well. Uh, so I want to ask you about that. I mean, I had always heard really scary stories about how cutthroat things were at, at Tencent. And there's this possibly apocryphal story about the creation of WeChat, WeSien, uh, for example. I don't know if you'd heard it because, you know, you seem to kind of allude to it, but you never quite spell out the version. There were multiple. The version I heard was that there were multiple teams, three teams, working on this product. And that, one team, you know, the team that actually, you know, delivered the the chosen product would, uh, you know, get lavish promotions. The second team would keep its jobs. The third team, bye-bye. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> uh,
1: I'm not sure what happened to the third team, but I think it is... You know, it's true that it's very cutthroat at Tencent. And especially even like right now, I think there are even more people are even more scared of holding on to their jobs in a down cycle. So, yeah, yeah. this culture that you're talking about, which is have multiple teams compete internally. That's the grassroots culture that we were talking about earlier, where um, uh, at Alibaba and Baidu, I feel like a lot of the decisions were more top down like Jack Ma would have this brilliant idea and they would throw all their money and resources at the project, which sometimes didn't pan out. Whereas Tencent seemed to allow their teams to, there's this term that the executives use where they democratize innovation. So they don't have an innovation mm. center. Every team is in charge of their own innovation. And if and if they don't swim, they sink. So everyone is on, on the lure and all, all, always tracking competitors. It creates internal cannibalism because very often yeah. people would be encroaching on other people's turf internally. But that that kind of is how WeChat was created because Alan John's team was not in charge of social media. They were a an email product. Um, he had this idea uh, very early in the morning in the wee hours and he wanted to try it out. And Pony said, yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, so Alan Zhang. Let's talk about him because he is Zhang Xiaolong. He's a cult figure, a real guru, uh, the object of almost you kind know, of mystical admiration from a lot of young people in the tech world. He was the creator of Foxmail, and he built it, you know, handedly, This this really popular mail, email service, and uh, that was, I guess, eventually folded into Tencent. And then he led that team, like you said, doing email, and came up with the idea of WeChat. So what is Alan Zhang all about? What made him such an object of of worship as a product manager? And I mean, because, you know, there's sort of a cult-like obsession with this idea of what makes a product manager great. Yeah. Right? In China, I know, they're always talking about product.
1: Yeah. Well, Tencent is a product manager-driven company. And I, I can tell you Alibaba was not always like that, or they're still not like that. It's all about, you know, for Alan, it's about what what makes sense in the product, and he and uh, I think WeChat is the typical example where he doesn't. WeChat is very um, it stands out compared with all the other products that you have on the market, where they're always spamming you with advertisement with all kinds of noise and for WeChat, it's, it's just a clean product. And even with all the yeah, functions, yeah. despite it's being a super app, it's always clean. And you're, you're so it, they really function like a utility app where your text messages are always prioritized and all that extra stuff is neatly designed into the background. Where it fits uh, user intuition. So for Alan, he he has this whole set of principles, his ten commandments that he talks about, mm-hmm. and and those are what what goes into the philosophy of his design. Surprisingly, he's a person who is not very articulate. People who've worked with him um, have flat out say said told me it's frustrating, absolutely frustrating to work with him because he cannot communicate his thoughts in a coherent fashion. Maybe he's got no, got God. him better these days. He has an obsession, but he's not the best at articulating what what the like the ideal is that he wants. I I listened to him give a speech once at a, WeChat has this annual conference and I remember sitting there in the audience and this lady who was an investor sitting next next to me just turns her head and says, "I cannot believe this person is Alan Zhang. How did he create WeChat?" Because she was just so not impressed <laughs> by the way he talked. But it was also that same speech where he talked for 4 hours straight. Yeah, 4 hours. 4 hours <laughs> it was supposed to be. Legendary it speech. It was supposed to be 20, 20 minutes, minutes and it turned out to a 4-hour speech, but he managed to hold the intention attention of everyone. Uh, in the audience, it was the content that really, really captured the people's attention and not his style of communication.
0: Yeah, sounds like it. So Tencent has been involved in some epic struggles over its lifetime uh, from its early war in messaging uh, with its QQ going up against Microsoft's uh, Messenger, which was, you know, I think people don't remember how popular. Uh, Microsoft's uh, – what was it even called? I can't remember. Windows Messenger before that MSN. it was called. MSN, right, MSN. It was super popular with white-collar types back in the early 2000s. Po- uh, it was
1: super popular with, with kids even. So I oh, really? I remember um, – so – that's how we communicated with our high school and university crushes back then, (laughs) or we would stalk them. We would stalk them and see when they logged on, you know, it it would generate this beeping sound. And, and that's how you stalk people (laughs) who are logged on at (laughs) 2am.
0: So, you know, you go into great detail about, about that and how uh, QQ eventually prevailed there. Uh, But there were also a bunch of other really interesting ones, like, the San Q battle between Zhou Hongyi's Chihu and Tencent's QQ um and I, i'll let, i'll let readers you know of your book enjoy that that story cuz it's it's really fun i mean Zhou Hongyi is another super colorful character i mean he's sort of the Cao, Cao of the chinese internet um, if, absolutely he that reference yeah he's a, he's a villain <laughs> <laughs> He's he's cunning and, and kind of evil, but also uh, but anyway. always
1: portrays himself as the underdog, which is a great yeah, branding stuff. Such crap, <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> but then um, you know they don't win all of their fights, at least not initially. One story that you tell with a really kind of long arc uh, begins with the war of the ten thousand Groupon clones, where Tencent actually partnered up with the original, you know, Chicago based Groupon itself. Uh, but ended up winning, like years later, when it pulls off this great coup with Meituan. Can you talk a little bit about that story because it's 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 quite central to the, to the book.
1: Yeah, um, Groupon. When they entered China, they they partnered with Tencent. And this was during the days when companies, Groupon, and everyone was subsidizing people to go purchase stuff online, and then they were not winning. And in those days, there was a company called Meituan that, that kind of emerged. And it was founded by Wang Xing, who had two very successful companies um, that both got shut down because they were politically sensitive uh one was
0: well first there's yeah, right? yeah
1: there was well right Xiaonei didn't get shut down well th- th- no, yeah. they got acquired they got but like he
0: sold it way too cheap he sold it way, way too so that cheap. was
1: a that was a success story then <laughs> then he started Fanfo and Fanfo was the Chinese equivalent of Twitter and and that got shut down, that service.
0: Yeah, I remember exactly when that happened. That was right after the uh, the, the Xinjiang, uh, the, the Urumqi riots that happened in, in 2009.
1: Yes, that's when they got a spike in use, users.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So Wang Xing then moved on to, he said, I'm going to go and move into something that's super apolitical, that's completely neutral, uh, which is when he went into Groupon. A huge part of success came from the fact that um, he poached a key lieutenant from Alibaba, and this person was part of the you know in Alibaba they have this strong Gong which is like a play on yeah. the Communist Party Central Supply. It's like it translates the the Central Supply System uh, Army, but that that's right. the army that goes and sells sells their their service to merchants. But it's also like a war, a play. Um, <laughs> Communist Party, Iron Army.
0: Because it's zhonggong, yeah, zhonggong
1: yeah. tiejun. Yeah. Um,
0: so, uh, just just to be clear, I mean, so these Groupon type companies required you to have lots of people with boots on the ground running around knocking on merchant stores and making these individual deals. It was an extremely labor intensive. Yeah, it was extremely
1: labor intensive, which is why Groupon was hiring so aggressively and everyone was burning so much money. And it's very funny. I think like in terms of management lessons, there's two things that I learned from this, from the process of reporting this. One is at the time, now it seems really, really intuitive, which is that more listings lead to more transactions. But at the time, um, People didn't know that. So they were all trying to brand this thing as consumer sense, which is what is the consumer going to buy? What is the consumer loving right. next week, next month, next year? And you'd have people at these companies controlling the front page, controlling the, the listicle, right? And uh-huh. uh, Agan, who is the person that Wansing brings along uh, or poaches, says so like that, that- Argan,
0: by the way is what what Forrest Gump is called.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. But- so so he says more listings lead to more transactions and that was like an epiphany for for them. The other thing was in terms of having managed his teams, he would ask the so, compete because there's many teams um, units competing internally and he would uh, ask the the successful team to come in the next uh, morning and they like the success successful teams. One of the lessons that they brought in was that if you come in in the morning and do the morning meetings and share your lessons learned from how do you how do you, um, do on the ground promotions that leads to, you know, a better team building and team understanding of how to promote the work. And a lot of the star teams or people who are doing well originally refused to take part in that because nobody wants to get up at 6 a.m. in the morning. And so he said, fine, do whatever you want to do. But if you underperform, then you have to follow this rule once you drop off the grade. And so uh, uh, eventually the, the teams that were Having these sharing sessions in the morning and having the morning meetings actually outperformed the other ones, and um, it's little things like that that helped them win the fight. There are many, many little things like that that helped differentiate them in the in the longer battle and um, compare with people who had a lot more money than them. So, okay, this is Groupon. They moved to yeah. they moved to a food um, at some point. They they made the leap. Into food delivery services, and they were competing with Ulama at the time. Yeah, right.
0: Ulama was an Alibaba investment.
1: Yeah, um, and and then there was also Baidu Waimai, i Remember, it was so messy. I do. <laughs> it was so messy. <laughs> there were so many competitors. Everyone was competing with anyone. Everyone, but I think on the broader scale, you had the Alibaba camp, and then there was Tencent who invested in Dianping, and Wang Xing was. Uh, was on Alibaba's side, but somehow, and I tell, I'll talk about this in the book, Tencent and Wang Xing uh, staged a coup. Yeah. And Wang Xing flipped to Tencent's camp and kind of, you know, deserted Alibaba and and that's kind of what shifted the whole landscape for in terms of food delivery services. Um, it really yeah, did. Yeah. It was a it was a very important business because it was high frequency and also essential to mobile app, mobile internet usage, payment systems. In a sense, it really helped Tencent when the, like partially helped them with the mobile payments war as well.
0: Wang Xin is another one of these interesting characters because he, again, he is just like, he's deeply weird. I mean, he's like another one of these, not very obviously charismatic guys i mean he's probably on the spectrum um
1: he's <laughs> logical yeah, he he, he values yeah, logic super... a lot. Uh, in fact that's one of the criticisms against him that he values logic and things logic it's kind of like a spock i guess
0: yeah yeah he's mr spock for sure for sure uh wow that what a i mean that's, that's the thing i mean one of the things about this book is it's just full of these these colorful characters for sure um so we all know tencent now because of wechat but that is still like you we said earlier on by no means uh, you know their most profitable product in fact it, it, it was i think it's still loss making um let's talk about tencent's might in online games and its partnerships with the major global game studios like riot uh activision blizzard and uh, Epic, which makes Fortnite, which is like one of the most popular games in, in the world. Um, how did that happen? How did they get into, become such a powerhouse in in games?
1: Well, originally Tencent, well, Pony was the one who wanted to get into games, and all his co-founders were against it, because that's not core to their original strategy. Right. Obviously, in the end, he managed to convince people to give him a try, and they after a few initial trial and errors, I think Mark Chen, who's the lieutenant he brought in, adopted the right strategy. And their preliminary success or during the desktop era was this whole strategy of importing great IP titles that did well overseas and importing them for Chinese internet users. After Tencent made the leap to mobile internet, their breakout hit was Honor of Kings. Right. And that game was such a huge hit because it attracted so many female users and people who are just not your typical gamer community people would be playing this game and using it as an icebreaker for business, like doing business. So that's the power of this game. It, it went beyond its typical reach.
0: You describe a scene where you and your friends play that game like 20 minutes after of dinner. a session or whatever exactly right after you've got you had dinner out in a restaurant you sit in a restaurant and four of you or whatever six of you played.
1: absolutely and we're all these middle-aged people in our 30s who are uh losers to the game like typical gamers who have nothing to do with gaming but we were truly addicted to the game at the time
0: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these came originally from like Korean models and where where that model was already very familiar where the kind of free-to-play, and then pay-for-item. The freemium model was already quite you know, entrenched. But this was not a common model outside of Asia at the time.
1: Uh, yeah, so Asia, Asia pioneered the freemium model. It, Tencent took full advantage or really, really brought that model to a whole new level. One of the typical success stories is Riot Games with League of Legends. Right. And this game... I think to a certain extent became such a huge hit is because uh, players don't have to pay upfront, and it creates a longer lifespan because gamers can buy you know they can buy in items like if you if you're really really invested in the game then you start decorating your characters you pay for gemstones to up your power and it creates a longer life shelf so you don't have to keep doing, creating one hit wonders um that only you know have a life shell of a few weeks to a few months, a lot of the gaming titles that they imported have been there in China for years, and that's one of the I think like the freemium model right now is a much more widely adopted model globally as well,
0: right, and they're lucky that these did have a long shelf life because at one point, and I'm not sure the exact date uh suddenly there was this massive crackdown on the industry but when did they suspend the issuance of new game licenses for for uh, online game companies in China i
1: think that was 2018 cuz and it's relevant to what's happening right now cuz now that now that i think about it what was happening on the regulatory level at the time was that um, you remember we had um, SARF and the, the state council control divisions where they would oversee publishing. And right. I think at the time what was happening was really that there was a power grab at the very high level where, where the party division was taking mo- more control over these sectors. So after the party inserted more control over publishing, they moved on to the internet sector. And the story that we reported last week, and the journal actually reported first, and then we also reported the same thing, is that there, what's going to be happening out of the plenum coming this week is that people are expecting that the same um, same thing is going to happen with the financial sector, mm. uh, where the, the Communist Party is going to insert or take more control by re- reviving this division called the Central Financial Work Commission. So if there's overlapping functions for the securities watchdog or the banking watchdog, some of those powers might be folded into the party division. For outsiders, it might seem it doesn't make sense because the party controls everything. But another way to think about it is that C is inserting his own men into, into key sectors of the economy. And finance is like one of the last sectors that that, you know, he's he's gonna make a power play on.
0: So as before the CBRC and the CSRC still had some autonomy from direct political control. They were they were very powerful regulatory agencies, but they had still a little bit of, of political independence, whereas now these party commissions will take precedence on, on important matters, of financial regulation. Mm,
1: I, I wouldn't that right? put, that, put it that way because the party does control everything. I think it's more about personnel issues. So you had these tech- okay. technocrats who grew under different patrons who rise through the ranks and were overseeing these divisions. Now he wants to replace um, his own people into these key, key functions of government you know, for for years, China always making sure that there was a division, or at least on the idea that the government and the party were functioning as two different entities, was right. was a thing. That I don't think that's being emphasized, or or maybe going forward, that's not a that's not a thing anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it's looking like to me. So let's talk bro- more broadly about, you know, what befell the internet sector beginning. I guess, you know, there was an early harbinger of it, you know, with this suspension of issuance of new game licenses. But really, I think most of the world woke up to this in November of, of 2020 when Ant Financial's IPO was pulled. Um, so what is your understanding of what Beijing was trying to accomplish broadly? I mean, because, you know, what followed on there, of course, was uh, what DD after they went ahead with their IPO in the United States suddenly they found themselves in really big deep regulatory hot water supposedly over concerns about data security where you know they were all allowing too much sensitive data to to be out of their hands as a us listed company and then of course the entire uh, after school tutoring sector just gets you know completely clobbered what's your understanding of the big picture thinking of that was coming from the party during this period because there's a lot of controversy over what it really was
1: yeah I, i don't think we'll ever get to the like get the full picture of what happened i i have my theories of where the thinking came from one you had these different strings of trends that were happening one is that on a whole after these internet companies shifted to the mobile internet age, the amount of data that they harvested became so significant. And a few months ago, actually, the um, government issued this paper for the first time where they acknowledge the status of data as a means of production. And so when you, th- if, if, if data is a means of production and the communist has to control key means of production in society um, to ensure its status as a communist state then of course they have to control this, right? So that's when thinking. Right. The other thing is the, the elevation of C's thinking of common prosperity where there is a huge gap in wealth in China. And I think common prosperity has clicked with a wide population in China, but it's not necessarily conducive to profits and to a lot of these companies because for years they were generating revenues and like 70, 80% profit. And these companies that were so lucrative and profitable became easy targets for that. That's where the, I think education crackdown came into play because education before I would say the uh, 2000s, it was a public service. And then commercialization of education was not a thing. And in the past few years with the uprising of startups and capital investment. (laughs)
0: TAL and and New Oriental.
1: You name it. um, You know, it really became a commercial product and it generated so much anxiety among parents. I think from both an emotional level for, for many of these bureaucrats whose kids were going through this rat race, to uh, overall thinking of you know, so he wants to generate population growth, so he needs to lessen the parent anxiety about education. All of that fed into the crackdown, and also a lot of it was ensuring that education, which is core to ensuring that the right train of or the right way of thinking, the right schools of thought for the future generation are still controlled. The narrative is controlled by the party, you know, the, and you have Western capital infiltrating a lot of these companies that play a huge role. They wanted to make sure that that this was still under control, the sector. So that, that also fed into this.
0: Yeah, your book talks an awful lot about um, the anxieties that they have now about you know the, the capitalization of all these, uh, these industries and
1: the capital that, expansion that's the term
0: yeah disorderly disorderly
1: no, 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 expansion no. of capital
0: <laughs> the disorderly expansion of capital so, so let's let's go back to your to Tencent specifically if there's a story in the history of Tencent a story you know in its rise uh that you would pick out that you find to be the most interesting or surprising to your readers or to people who you've talked to about the book, what would that story be?
1: I find the characters, the personalities behind what creates these companies the most interesting. Yeah. And it's very easy to just um, say, oh, you know, Tencent, Alibaba, these companies became so big because of the firewall, which is true to a certain extent. But the competition that they managed to, uh, that they experienced, and the fact that Western capital played such a huge role in the growth of these companies, the fact that the biggest um, pension funds and endowment funds in the U.S. actually are invested um, and closely tied with these Internet giants in China, that that whole capital trail is, was not obvious to people living on both sides. Um Of the Pacific, I think, so what what happened for China internet in the past decade, I think was a very for the past two decades was a very special period in human history where you did have one point three billion leapfrogging into the mobile internet age, and you had all the right elements of capital talent, regulatory environment to create this this era which was just, you know gone down and known as uh golden era for China internet.
0: Yeah. God, I was really lucky to have been in the middle of that. I feel like... uh,
1: You saw the best years.
0: I did. I really really do feel like I saw the best years. So, Lulu, if Tencent has an Achilles heel, what would it be? What's their big weakness?
1: Well, their big weakness right now is that they're so powerful.
0: Yeah. Their size itself, their success is...
1: Their success is... A dangerous thing to them themselves.
0: I because, you know, they, they, they are now just so integral to, to life that the party cannot but get its hands in, in you know, it, more and more into what, what their their business is, right? Yeah. Yeah, I would have to agree. I mean, they, they are, if anything, are going to be victims of their own success. Fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the book. It's called Influence Empire. The inside story of Tencent and China's tech ambition. I, I couldn't recommend it more highly. It's just, uh, it's really well written and fun. And uh, and it just, it, it, it is like a history of the golden age. So uh, congrats on that. Thank you. Before we move on to recommendations, I want to offer a quick reminder that uh, if you like the work that we do with the Cynical podcast, the best thing that you can do is become an access subscriber. Uh, we're running a promotion right now for just a, a buck for your first month. you can uh, become an access subscriber you get uh, the podcast early on Mondays instead of having to wait until Thursday uh, f- through our secret RSS feed that we will send you if you become a an access subscriber and of course you get our daily newsletters which are just fantastic So uh, definitely do that and you'll be helping us out. Uh, we will be you'll have my eternal gratitude. All right, let's move on to recommendations now. Lulu, what do you have for us? Uh,
1: I wanted to recommend something that's more evergreen, and it's a book that that I've read so many times. <laughs> it's um, I read it for, for for just to enjoy the lines, and um, you know, I, I think it'll go down as one of those classical books that you can read over and over again. And it's um, called Gay Talise Reader. It's a collection of profiles that he did for yeah. for magazines, including The New Yorker. The reason why it's awesome, I think, is because, you know, we talk about profiles. And Gay Talise has this point about hating the recorder, where he refuses to sit down and have an interview <laughs> one-on-one with the people that he writes about he's always observing him in action and looking at putting them into their like their what 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 they're really like in real life and i think that's a lost it's a it's a lost craft or you know we don't as journalists we don't do that enough um so yeah i would recommend it. i i learned so much about writing and reporting as a journalist from that book um really gave me yeah
0: oh fascinating he was in Beijing, I think it was like in the year 2000, I'm going to say. Uh, and it was really funny because he was, he was living in the China World Hotel. I remember he, he uh, was going to come to this party where me and a bunch of my friends were. And I said something like, you know, hey, you know, he's going to be here. Let's not be like all sycophantic and, and obsequious, okay? You know, let's everyone act normal when he gets here. And, of course, like he gets there and then uh, I can't remember what the exact line I said, but what's I say? I asked him a question that was prefaced with, as a prominent American man of letters, and then everyone just sort of rolled their eyes and groaned at me. (laughs) Uh, But uh, yeah, he's terrific. I love his his work. It's amazing. Uh, You know, uh, his his fantastic book about the New York Times, of course, a a classic. My recommendation is something completely opposite from that and super, super silly. Um, It's the series Kunk on Earth, uh, it stars Diana Morgan. It's on Netflix. Uh, Diana Morgan plays this character named Philomena Kunk uh, and who is like this profoundly stupid host of a kind of documentary, uh, historical documentary. So it's kind of like, you know, Ali G, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, so she's interviewing these unsuspecting academics, you know, who think they're going to be talking seriously about ancient Greece or ancient Rome. But she asks them these just completely insane often very vulgar questions in this flawless deadpan. Her deadpan is just amazing that she can say such, you know, just like nonsensical stuff to them. You definitely have to be in the right mood to enjoy this because it's just so dumb. And so, but I, I was seriously, I had like a, a leftover, I still have a little bit of a cough from this cold I had a couple of weeks ago. And I was like having bronchial spasms from laughing so hard. I, I thought I was going to die. So uh, be careful. Don't don't do it if you have bronchitis. But uh, uh, it's it's fun. Kunk on Earth. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's so great you recommended it. I I saw this on Netflix so many times and just was not interested. <laughs> but now that you recommended it, I I think yeah. Yeah,
0: it's it's you got to be in the right mood. If you just feel like just something. Completely stupid and silly and and funny uh, to get your mind off the world. Just, just it's it's quite enjoyable. All right, Lulu, it was so great to co- reconnect and so great to talk to you about the book.
1: Absolutely, oh, so nice to talk to you, and so huge congratulations to your success. Ha. When you, said that, when you said that you were going to do a podcast when you go back to the U.S., I, I wasn't sure that you were <laughs> serious. Uh,
0: no, that's what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm really glad that it's worked out like this because uh, I enjoy this so much for just you know, for this very reason because I get to talk to people about their, their fascinating work. And your book is just fantastic. So please, everyone, grab a copy. It's called Influence Empire, The Inside Story of Tencent and China's Tech Ambition. Uh, congrats once again and uh, great to talk to you the Seneca podcast is powered by the China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network our show is produced and edited by me Kaiser Guo we would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at com, or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show meanwhile follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at the China Proj, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network thanks for listening and we'll see you next week Take care.